0: morning, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the uh, the summer that we're we're experiencing now that the wind has stopped. Eh? Isn't it fantastic to be able to actually say summer has finally arrived? Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at some of the foundations of our faith. We've looked at um, forgiveness and we've looked at faith. And uh, some of you may have remembered last week about uh, the rubber bands we gave out, stretchy, stretchy, reminding ourselves that uh, faith only works when we're being stretched. Of course, as we move on and look at these foundations, today we're going to look at something that is extremely foundational, and that is the work of grace, the work of grace in our lives. You know, grace is a a lovely name, isn't it? Some of you will know a grace, some of you may be called grace, Uh, but grace is not just a name and it's not just an idea, but it is indeed the very, very power of God that actually rests in our lives that is Sort of, if you like, a summary of the transaction that has occurred between us and God. A transaction that was initiated by God, not by us. And that's why grace is what grace is. is because it's not about us. It's about about God's favour being put upon us and for us to receive it as an act of faith as we receive forgiveness through grace. The story of God is of one that tells us that we are separated from God. And that's the sad news, that's the bad news. But the sad news and the bad news, of course, is accompanied by the good news. And the good news is that God reached out to us through his son, Jesus. And by reaching out to us, his ultimate word to us, his ultimate word to us was, I love you to the point where I would die for you. I love you to the point where I would die for you. And this is the story of God's grace to us. This is the story of God's goodness to us. But not only did God send his son that he would die for our sins, die in our place, but he also overcame death. And that's why we have the resurrection, the empty tomb. So the cross and the empty tomb go together to tell a complete story of what it is that God wants us to know about him. And it's this revelation of who he is that helps us understand ourselves. Helps us understand ourselves from God's perspective. You see, there's plenty of people telling you who you are and what you should be from their perspective, okay? If you're, um, if you're selling uh, shampoo, the thing they want you to know is that without their shampoo, you're going to get dandruff, okay? And if they're selling deodorant, they're going to tell you that you stink without them. So they're always trying to tell you what you are without them, without this great holiday, you're gonna be exhausted. Okay, without this education, you're gonna be a nobody. Without this hit, and it goes on. We've always got somebody telling us what it is that we should believe that we are, but God wants to tell us something far more powerful than all of this marketing. God wants to tell us who we are, our identity, our purpose, and the place that we have in his heart, the heart of the creator. This is called grace. It's good news, isn't it? We're on on a winner already. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The good news about this statement is that it doesn't tell us something that we probably would lean towards, and that is that we need to earn God's favour. This scripture doesn't tell us that when we were trying to be better, God finally felt sorry for us. Or when we finally reached to the point where we deserved his favour, he sent his son to die for us. No, the scripture here tells us that whilst we were still sinners, in other words, when we hadn't even made the grade, hadn't even made the mark, God sent his son Jesus to die for us. And so here we have the beginning of the story of grace as the New Testament unpacks it for us. Paul goes on to then say, now that we have this grace given to us, this gift of God given to us, that God has died for us through his son, Jesus. We're told that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So not only was the son of God crucified to give us forgiveness. But Paul tells us something else happens as well in this space. What happens in this space is that we take on this free gift. It's not just the forgiveness, but we receive, we inherit this death that Christ has died. We take that death, and in taking on that death, things in us begin to die. What begins to die? Well, the things that separate us from God the things that tempt us away from God. And that's why Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. And so we've got this new birth occurring. As our old self dies, this new birth is occurring. And this is why this grace is this ever active, ever powerful, ever present, transforming of our inner being. To become a Christian is not just a one-stop shop. Got this certificate, thanks very much. See, you when I go to heaven. That's not what it's about. Some might think it is that way, and certainly some live like it's that way, but grace is a transforming power. I was talking to some um, relatives who aren't churchgoers a while ago, and they had um, one of their their children go overseas and uh, experience a third world nation. The big discussion is, how much will that person have changed when they get back? Will they appreciate this more? Will they appreciate that more? Will they have a change of values? And I was interested in this conversation because uh, for them, this was a one-stop shop, an opportunity for life to change. When I thought about that, I thought, this is the way that we live our lives. This is what the Christian life is all about. Every opportunity, every transaction, every relationship, every challenge that we face is an opportunity for us to be transformed more into the image of Jesus. And so for us as Christians, allowing grace to work in our lives is allowing everyday things to become the vehicle by which God transforms us. All of the challenges, all of the opportunities for grace to be seen is allowing us to grow into the image of Christ. We're also told here in 1 uh, in Corinthians that, um, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Here's Paul talking about the crucifixion. And the thing that gets me every time about this scripture is that Paul is describing how he has a conversation with people who may be wanting to learn about the Christian message. Paul says, I only know one thing. What's that, Paul? That Jesus Christ was crucified for your sins. Well, Paul, how do we live this Christian life? Well, let me tell you this. Jesus died for your sins. He was crucified in your place. Yeah, but Paul, how do we become uh, more God? Jesus Christ died for your sins. This is what I need to tell you. Paul is not being an idiot here. Paul is actually saying to us, the more revelation that you have of the fact that the son of God died for you, the more transformative that will be in your life. How much should I give to this situation, Paul? Well, let me just tell you something. I'm not, I don't know what the answer is to that, but Christ was crucified for you. So how does that influence what you give? What should I do for a living, Paul? Well, I don't know about that, but let's just remember that Christ died for you. So let that influence how it is that you serve people around you. Can you see how Paul was on a winner here? He wasn't trying to give an answer. He was trying to create a bigger, bigger question and a bigger picture that allowed people to experience the grace of God into every area of their lives. How much should I love my husband or how much should I love my wife? Well, let me just tell you, Paul, Paul would say, Christ died for you. He was crucified for you. Let that inform your marriage. And so it goes on. And so Paul was, is, is continuing to take us back to this place of the cross all the time to allow that grace, that image, that picture to impact us. He wasn't trying to be clever. He was trying to allow us to experience the fullness of what God has for us. And once we understand this fullness, we are humbled. We're humbled because we realize that there's nothing that we can bring that is going to earn more of God's favor. The cross was perfectly complete in its ability to give us everything that God wants for us. We can't say, um, here's the cross, here's the completed work of the cross that wins my salvation, wins my relationship with God, wins God's favour, and now if I just do a little bit of this and a little bit of that, I might win more of God's favour and I'll be a super special person in God's eyes. It doesn't work that way. We've just heard from Judy, who spent decades working overseas as missionary, um, Judy didn't do that to earn more favor with God. She did that as a response to God's love for her. Is that fair to say, Judy? Why are you a missionary, Judy? Just look at Jesus. He was crucified for me. That motivates me. That compels me. This is what grace looks like in action. It becomes the reason and the motivation and the fuel that compels us into every region of our lives that we might live a life of faith, faith in the understanding of whom we are in God, how we've been created, what purpose we've been created for. And as I say, it leaves us humbled. Paul says this again, he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What have you got to bring? Show me your CV. Tell me all the great things you've done. The only great thing I've done is trust in Christ because there's nothing else I can boast about. Everything else has been given to me, gifted to me as a result of who I am. Even the gift of faith, the measure of faith that I have is a gift. It's all a gift from God. It begins with him, it ends with him and everything in the middle is about him. It's a wonderful place to be. And we don't even get to boast about it. We just get to point back to the son of God who died for us. Impressed? Well, yes, we should be impressed. But not impressed in a way that is like, whoa, high fives all around. Jesus, man, you're my buddy. Give it to me, you know? It's, it's not that sort of impression. When we talk about being impressed with Christ, sure, we can be impressed with the story, but there's a different form of impression that we're talking about here. If you were lying here and I came along with my knee and went like that, that would impress you, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Hey? Right in your thorax, mm-hmm. all right? And you'd cough and you'd splutter. Yeah, you just had a revelation of how much I weigh, do Yeah. So. <laughs> hey? That would impress you. It would impress you physically because there's, there's an impression being made upon you. And this is the sort of impression that I'm talking about here when we're impressed by Christ. You see, when we get a lump of metal and we put a die above it and we whack it, we change its identity and we change its value and it's permanently indelibly changed forever. If we take that die and we just tap it lightly, there might be just a vague impression of what it is that that was meant to be or what its full, the fullness could look like. For us as Christians, we need to be impressed with Christ. In other words, to have this die impressed upon us in such a way that the image of Christ is impressed upon our soul, upon our character, upon our being, upon upon our identity, upon our purpose. And that in itself is grace at work in our lives. So we are impressed with the image of Christ. Not just impressed because he's a good guy. He's my homeboy, he's the man. You know, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the son of God who impresses himself upon us. And we allow that change to be transforming us on an ongoing basis from glory to glory. Uh, some years ago, I was in Poland. And uh, amongst a number of things that I was visiting there, uh, there was a, uh, the royal mint. The mint being the place where they made the money. And it was kind of handy that they had a seam of gold being mined out of the hill below. There was Handy, you need one of those if you're going to make money. And yet, within this courtyard, there were all these men were employed uh, to take literally the, the molten silver and to, as it was calling, to to whack it with a die and imprint imprint the um, the head of the, the Czech Republic uh, king at the time or queen. The intriguing thing about the story, is it was un, un, as it was told to us, is that these people would sign up. To do this work, it was a very privileged work, but there was a price to pay. And the price was this, was that within 18 months, they would be totally deaf. Totally deaf because of the noise being made as they whacked this impression into the coin, into the metal to make the coin. And yet it leaves me with a great little illustration. Because the thing about being impressed with Christ is that we should ultimately be deaf to the world. Yeah? Do you like that? that works, hey? Okay? You see, by being deaf to the world, it means that we have been crucified with Christ. The things that are being yelled at us, the lies that are being told to us about what our value is all about and where our, our, our life actually, we're told, should reside when it comes to the things of this world, we should be deaf to that. We should be in a position where who Christ calls us to be, tells us that we are, what purposes he has for us, these are the things that should matter the most to us. So we are being impressed with Christ constantly. And we can't, we can't be impressed with Christ unless there's a foundation of grace which says right from the beginning, he loves me more than I can ever understand. He loves me with a greater understanding than I have of my own being. He loves me with a greater purpose than I could ever, ever come to grips with. And so my life, and I trust yours too, is just this ongoing revelation, like lightning bolts coming into my heart and my soul of just how much he loves me. Just how much he loves me. And for this reason, and this isn't a scripture, this is just a comment, my behavior changes from the inside out when I realize that the son of God died for me. That's grace at work. That's the power of God at work within each one of us. As we go, wow. Wow, what, what, is it, what is it that I should do in this scenario when I realise that the Son of God died for me? All of my behaviours, all of my thinking, all of my attitudes, all get moderated or changed or challenged because of that single revelation. And then, of course, there's an obligation. We can't pay this debt back, but we do owe somebody something. Strange, isn't it, how God works this way? You see... I can't pay for a gift that has already been given to me, right? If somebody gave me a bicycle for Christmas, I can't walk back into the bicycle shop and say, oh, here's the bike I got for Christmas. I'd like to pay you for it. And they'll say, no, no, it's already been paid for. No, 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 but I want to pay for it. And I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. It's already been paid for. That would be dumb, wouldn't it? Yeah? But I might ask the question, well, how do I... you know, honour the person who bought it for me. They might say, well, let let somebody else ride it with you. Or let somebody else use it, share it, bring generosity to the whole event. And so what we're being told um, by Jesus is this. It says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments, You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfillment of the law. Sorry, that was Paul, not Jesus, obviously. Romans. Um, And so we're told that our debt for this free gift is nothing that we owe God But he says, pay it forward. Pay it forward. Love on other people. Love on those around you. Give them what they don't deserve. Love. Okay, so that's grace. That's a a, a short description of grace. The problem with grace, and there is a problem, is there is an evil temptation that stalks this grace from God. Terminology you might use shades this grace from God, shadows this grace from God. See, the problem is that once we have a revelation of how much God loves us, our deceitful heart, and it is deceitful above all things, Prophet Jeremiah tells us this, reminds us this, that the heart of man is deceitful above all things. In other words, we keep on fooling ourselves. The problem is, is that when we receive all this great love and attention and grace, we default to thinking that it's all about me. Oh, God loves me so much that it's all about me. Therefore, if it's all about me, maybe I can get away with something. Maybe I can make this all about me in such a way that I can make Jesus look a lot like me and not a lot like him. Therefore, the worship can be me-centred rather than God-centred, you know? And we hear this all the time, this sort of language, don't we? You know, all the time. It's just so normal we don't even think about it. You know, how was the worship today? Oh, it was all right. Really? Was it for you? <laughs> Seriously? You know, we speak as if, We're up here like this. Worship me. Don't we? How was the worship today? Oh, it was okay. They sung pretty well. The songs were pretty good. It was never about you. It was never about you. And Somehow we get this idea that this Christian stuff is all about me. but then it gets worse than that. Can it get worse than that? Yes, it can get worse than that. And here is where grace runs amok. And here is where grace ruins the story if we don't get it right. You see, Paul was being challenged by a group of people who were so enamored by grace, so much in love with this grace of God, that they said, hey, guess what? We can prove that God loves us by sinning. Yeah, it'd be a little bit like saying, hey, my dad really, really loves me. Really, how, how do you know he loves me? Well, I go out every Friday and Saturday night and I just rack up all these speeding fines and dad pays them. Dad loves me. And so I'm gonna prove how much dad loves me by getting more speeding fines. Does that sound logical to you? Well, it doesn't sound very logical. It didn't sound logical to Paul either because look at what he was challenged by. He said, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Doesn't that sound crazy? But here's a question found within the letter to the Roman church, because the Roman church was so blown away by how much God loves them. They wanted to prove this to everybody around them. So they would challenge Paul and say, shall we sin so that we can explain to everybody that we're forgiven? Does that make sense? Well, on one hand, it's quite exciting because it shows you just how impressed they were with the forgiveness that God offers to the point where their consciences were clear. They're saying, we can sin to prove the point that God loves us. wonder how dad feels about that every time he gets a speeding ticket to pay. The son goes, dad, here's some more speeding tickets. Man, I just keep getting speeding tickets to prove to my mates just how cool you are. Does that make sense? Of course it doesn't make sense. I'm not trying to make it sense. Paul says, this is a rhetorical question, of course, because he's writing this letter. He immediately follows it up by saying, by no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live it in it any longer? Some of your Bibles might have, God forbid, not just by no means, God forbid. Don't let your thinking becomes thinking. Don't go down this track. Don't think that grace is there as a permission for you to sin. It's not, it's forgiveness. It's an opportunity to grow. It means that when you make genuine mistakes on your genuine journey to be impressed by Christ, becoming like Christ and you mess up, you have a way back. It is not permissive, okay? Grace is not permission to sin. It's not just like, oh, oh God, you understand me. Wink, wink, we'll be right, okay? It doesn't work that way, okay? So let's just read a little bit further about what, uh, what Paul says here. For if we have been united with him in his death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Okay? So the old story goes of a woman who faithfully went to church every day, not every day, every week, okay? Wouldn't be a Baptist if they went every, every week. I won't go there. So every week she went, and she would say to her husband, Are "You going to come to church with me?" No, not coming." This went on for year after year after year. Finally, one day she comes home, and she rings her pastor, and she said, "My husband." Is now dead to sin. The pastor goes, Why? She said, Well, he's died. He is dead to sin. He can't sin anymore. And for us, the goal is to crucify our old self so that we too are dead to sin. And the first place of being, in our place of being dead to sin, is that sin finds no, sin no longer has any attraction to us our values change. Our understanding of whom Christ is impresses us to the point where we say this stuff is all superfluous. This is of no value to God. It's of no value to me. And so therefore this sin is being done away with, and I am no longer a slave to it. To be a slave to it means that you're bound to sin. Being a slave to it means that it controls you. Being dead to it means that it no longer controls you and you're no longer a slave to it. Let me give an example of what grace looks like when it's really being outworked badly. In marriage, we, uh, we're excited by the fact that two people will get together, and husband and a wife, and they'll pledge lifelong commitment to one another through better for worse, for richer for poorer, sickness and health, till death do us part. Okay. Forever, babe, it's all about you and me. And let's say, let's say, the husband hears this, and he is: "She loves me. unconditional. till death do us part. Better if it worse, richer for poorer. Cool. I'm out of here with the boys Friday night. See you later, hun. Why? Because you love me, don't you? Hey? You love me. You'll always forgive me. It doesn't matter what I do. Hey? Now, how long do you think that would last? One weekend, maybe? Two? But I love you, babe. Thanks so much for allowing me to hang out with the boys and a few of the girls that you don't know about. Hey? That's not going to last, is it? That's not what grace is about. That's not what love is all about. And yet somehow, somewhere, it's easy for us to convince ourselves that Christ died so that we can sin. It's a subtle shift, but Christ didn't die so that we can sin. Christ died so that we can put sin to death. And that's the beauty of this grace is that we are forgiven and then we have the power to continue to allow this impression to be stamped upon us so that we become more and more like Christ. In, the, in a little little passage, sorry, a little passage, a little letter in the book. Sorry, I'll start again. In the little In Jude, <laughs> which is a little letter. It's only got one chapter. Jude is writing to the church and you can see here he's pretty excited about what he wants to write to them about. But all of a sudden, he changes his mind. Let's see, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Okay? So so Jude was going to write and remind them of their salvation. See that in the first sentence? I want to tell you how much you're loved by God. I want to tell you how much you're forgiven by God. I want to tell you how much the the cross and the resurrection actually empowers you to be God's people. It's all about God's love. I want to write and tell you about that because that's what God's salvation looks like. But before he even completes that sentence, he says, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. Okay, hold on. Why do we now have to fight for this faith that we're told we already have? Well, something must be happening. Something must be slipping. What is it? What was slipping, according to Jude? Well, the next verse tells us, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. And deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So, most of you here will have a license to drive. Yeah? So if, you, um, if you're driving along one day and you get stopped by the police or whatever reason, they'll ask you, do you have a license? And you'll say, here it is. Check that out. Clean as a whistle. Right? Eh? maybe. And the police would say, that's fine. You're allowed to be on the roads here. In this case, what's happening here is people were living sinful lifestyles, calling themselves Christians. And the reason why they felt that they could get away and do this is because they felt that the grace of God gave them license to do that. So they're taking a gift, the gift of grace, the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness, and they're using it as the excuse to do anything apart from being a Christian. And then say, hey, we're allowed to do this. Why? Because look at the grace of God, isn't it amazing? God forgives us. So we plot and plan our sinful lifestyle. And then we turn around and we say, hey, guess what? I've got a license to get away with this. Doesn't work, does it? It stinks. Literally stinks. It stinks of hypocrisy. And I tell you, there's one thing that the world has a tuned in radar for. That's hypocrisy. You don't have to be a Christian to discern whether somebody's leading a Christian life or not. Because hypocrisy is somehow on our radar, isn't it? The amount of conversations that I suggest that you have had, and I know I certainly have had, with people who don't see themselves as Christians, but are more than willing to point out the sins of those who call themselves Christians. Yeah? You ever had one of those conversations before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. actually I remember one time years ago um, before I went off to theological college uh, sitting in a staff meeting and they were having a bit of a round of telling jokes and, um, and I said um, I said oh where do, where do flies go where do flies go when they die people looked at me and went oh I don't know I said up old men's noses because you can see their legs hanging out <laughs> That was a bad joke. But this woman turned to me and said, that's a terrible joke. You shouldn't say that. You're a Christian. I thought, what? Anyway. I'm not quite sure why I told you that. but I must need some counselling. But grace and your actions go together. See, one of the things about, for example, I'll use this marriage illustration again. Once you get married, somebody should be able to take you to court and accuse you of being married and find you guilty. Shouldn't they? I have found you guilty of being married. You're committed You're faithful. You're loving. You're kind. You're understanding. You do the dishes. You pick up your own clothes. You mow the lawns. I'm starting to get in dangerous territory here, aren't I? Okay. I find you guilty of being married. Cool. James says the same thing to us, and we're going to finish on this, but I've used the message translation because I think this is really helpful. This is grace in action. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words, but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, good morning, friend, be clothed in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. You like the way that uh, Peterson puts that? Yeah. Nice and simple, nice and clear, isn't it? Yeah, you 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 can talk all you want about faith, but faith should be proven by its actions. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, sounds good you take care of the faith department, I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith, fit together hand and glove. Okay? So there's an embodiment that happens with Christian faith. This impression, this, this lump of silver if you want to create us into a precious metal, this lump of silver being impressed again and again by the person of Jesus will have an impact upon your life and ultimately the life of everybody around you. So that when someone says, do you know what a Christian looks like? They can say, yeah, I know what a Christian looks like. And they can put your name to that. They can put your name to that. That's what faith looks like Once once grace has had its transforming way with you, that's what faith looks like when grace has had its transforming way with you. And so, as we look forward into 2020, I'm excited about how we can individually take responsibility for the growing up that continues on in our lives. It doesn't stop. You don't get to a certain place or a certain level of grace, it never gets to that place at all. We continue to grow. We continue to allow the Spirit of God to challenge us, to grow us in our attitudes and our actions in our thinking in every part of our lives. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It never stops happening. And we never stop saying yes to what God wants to do in and through us. And so when we get to retirement age and we say, oh Lord, I've just spent my life as a missionary. We can say, what shall I do in my retirement? Oh, I know. I might as well go and do the whole thing again. Learn a whole new language. Go to a whole new country. So my whole life can be wholly spent serving a holy, serving a holy God. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we um, we're mindful of. The fact that grace is an ongoing revelation to us, and wherever we might be right now, personally, Lord, I know that You're wanting to pour Your Spirit into our into our lives, to allow us to just see afresh the beauty of Your love for us. That this love doesn't seem like it's somebody else's love; it's not standing off in the distance, but it's personal. It's about about us. It's about me. It's about each one of us here, that we can be recaptivated, reimagined in that place of understanding that on the cross you died for us, that we're set free because you paid the price for our sins, and you overcame death through the power of God. And this gift that is given to us, Lord, we just want to just keep learning more and more about it. We want to take it upon ourselves to, to grow, become more and more like, like Jesus. So God, sometimes the, the work of the hammer and pressing upon us can be, can be challenging, can be painful. But we don't say stop. We say continue, Lord, continue. Continue to refine us and help us to become more like Jesus. Oh God, we say amazing grace so flippantly, but truly it is amazing. Truly you are amazing. So Father, we offer ourselves afresh this year as we look forward to, to what it is that you have for us. Confident, confident in the fact that our value and our identity is found deeply within you. Children of God, we ask all this in Jesus' name.